Our scripture comes from the book of Acts, chapter 2, beginning with verse 37. Uh, This is following the Pentecost experience of the outpouring of the Holy Spirit uh, and all the disciples speaking in the tongues, the languages of all those Jews who come from around the world to worship at the Pentecost festival. And uh, Peter then preaches a sermon. And that's where this picks up. When the people heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the other apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? Peter replied, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off for all whom the Lord our God will call. I want to highlight that last line. For all whom the Lord our God will call. That includes us. With many other words he warned them and he pleaded with them, save yourselves from this corrupt generation. Those who accepted his message were baptized and about 3,000 were added to the church uh, number that day. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. So please pray for me as I pray for you. Almighty God, pour out your spirit upon us Anoint the words of mine with only the power that you can give them and anoint us all as we open our hearts and our minds to your leading. For this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. It would be interesting to ask what your experience has been with Holy Spirit activity. My first encounter was as a teenager, which of course meant that my, my views of the Holy Spirit were a little distorted from what's in scripture, but I was uh, visiting a church of God in our town. Uh, I was there to seek some uh, recruit help for creating some activities for youth in our community. And I was there just to participate in their worship service. And at one point, the pastor said, "Uh, let us go to God in prayer. And I expected it would be a pastoral prayer on behalf of the congregation, just like we do here. Suddenly, everybody in the congregation got up, went up and kneeled and started praying aloud in tongues. And these were not known tongues. And I'm going, oh my. (laughs) As a teenager, I, what am I supposed to do here? Because I can't do that. So that was my first experience. But um, I came to learn later on a much more comprehensive view of the activity of the Holy Spirit. The phenomena of tongues or holy laughter or healing and deliverances 
or being slain in the spirit, as one of my fellow clergy did at Revival, are mysterious. They're often scary because they're different from what we know and intimidating. Through biblical studies, I discovered um, that these demonstrative, outwardly demonstrative evidences of the Spirit are biblical, but they are not the main purpose of the Holy Spirit. And even Paul said that the use of tongues in worship had to be limited uh, to no more than three. Furthermore, they can be a distraction when we focus on them from the primary mission and power and purpose of the Holy Spirit. Through biblical studies, I discovered um, um, that witnessing to Christ's resurrection and God's gift of eternal life was the essential gift of power of the Holy Spirit. That's its purpose, was to help us grow in our relationship with God and communicate God's love to other people. That's what Pentecost was all about. That's what brought 3,000 people uh, to be baptized that day. However, as Ben said Sunday, what is most scary and intimidating is when the Holy Spirit equips us and calls us to go out and do the witnessing. Too often, the doctrine of the Holy Spirit focuses on those outwardly demonstrative and mysterious experiences. And while they are legitimate gifts, I want to take a look tonight at the more primary gifts of the Spirit uh, that are described in the New Testament. The first is in John 14, where Jesus promises the disciples he will send the Holy Spirit uh, to be our advocate. He says, I will ask the Father, and he will give you another advocate to help you, and he will be with you forever, the Spirit of truth, who lives with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Paul later says, did you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit? This is where the Spirit dwells in, in us. Now this was, of course, before Jesus' crucifixion and resurrection. Now the way I understand it is that the disciples experienced the real physical presence of Jesus, which, of course, because it's physical, is limited in time and space. You can only be in one place at one time. Jesus said, if I don't go, the Spirit can't come. And sending the Spirit was Jesus' way of being able to be everywhere with everyone all the time, no matter what their location was. And after he ascended, he sent the Holy Spirit. Um, but I want to remind you that the Pentecost experience we just read about in Acts is not the first time Jesus gave the Holy Spirit to the disciples. Most people don't know that. But if you turn over to the Gospel of John, 
In uh, chapter 20, you'll find that at Jesus' first resurrection appearances to the disciples, minus um, Thomas, because uh, so this was the first Sunday after, um, he appeared to all the disciples, and he said to them, as the Father has sent me, I am sending you. And with that, he breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. The scholars are not really clear about what's going on there or what form that gift of the Spirit took at that time, but it's very clear from Scripture that it did happen. So as we look at the New Testament, briefly Paul describes the work of the Holy Spirit in several ways. In Romans 8, he says the Spirit is our power to put to death the misdeeds of the body. In other words, to stop sinning and disobeying God, to be able to turn our life towards God. In Romans 8:16, the Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children, uh, heirs of God and uh, joint heirs with Christ. So it tells us who we are and whose we are. The Spirit also, in 8.26, intercedes for us through wordless groans. And that passage is a way of saying, when you try to pray, and I know that all of you have had those times in your life, when you try to pray and you just can't find the words, but your heart is just burdened, one of the jobs of the Holy Spirit is to convey that prayer to God on your behalf. So be assured that when you're in that circumstances and you just can't get the words out mentally or, or verbally, be assured God hears what's in your heart. And in Romans 15, the Holy Spirit overflows us with joy, peace, and hope. As uh, we would say in the Lord's Prayer, my cup runs over. Life is full. While these are not a complete list of the Spirit's functions, they are the same, or some, of the key things the Holy Spirit does for us. However, Paul describes three other primary functions of the Holy Spirit that are designed to help us complete the missions that God calls us to do as Christians and as the church. The first has already been mentioned, and that is to be witnesses of Jesus' resurrection and God's gift of eternal life. And that witness can take many forms, and in fact, in my opinion, it needs to take a form that's individually appropriate to who you are, not trying to be somebody else. Secondly, to walk up so closely with the Spirit, as Galatians says, that the fruit of the Spirit becomes evident and eventually perfected in our personality. The fruit of the Spirit, the seven fruits, who can tell me what they are? This is a test now. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, and uh, what else? I always get lost there. 
Kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness. Oh, uh, yes, and that last one, self-control. These are essentially character traits. They're personality traits. And these are the fruit of the Spirit because the Spirit is designed to connect us with God and to make us like God. These are the qualities of God's character. And so if we are God's people, they should, our lives should reflect these qualities, these fruit of the Spirit. Let us, <clears throat> and then um, the Spirit equips us, uh, thirdly, with spiritual gifts. I have to tell you, these are not the same things as natural talents or abilities. They could be, but they don't have to be. Natural talents or abilities are something you're just born with. And you can develop those or ignore them, whatever you want to do, but they're yours. They're a gift of your biological inheritance. But spiritual gifts are given to you through the Holy Spirit. And they are uh, qualities or abilities or uh, things that you can do that when you use them, like you do talents, the Spirit blesses them fourfold, sixtyfold, a hundredfold. When you offer these gifts to God, they are richly blessed. That's why they're given to you. And they're given to you, to each one of us, based on where we are, what the needs are around us. So you could, for example, receive a spiritual gift while you're in this congregation because that's what this congregation needs. But if you were to move from here to another place, the Spirit might give you a different gift that's more appropriate to that congregation. Excuse me. <clears throat> These are obviously gifts that you don't control, but our job is, number one, to recognize what they are, and there's a spiritual gifts inventory on our website. If you uh, haven't taken that already, that'll give you a start. Um, but uh, once you recognize what they are, they're just like any natural talent. The more you use them, and the more prayerfully you use them, the more mature and effective they become. So, that's your ability to be effective for God, both personally and within the congregation of the church. That's what these gifts are designed to do. Uh, there are three mentions of these gifts. Uh, Paul outlines their purpose in his letter to Ephesians 4. But to each one of us, grace has been given as Christ apportioned it to equip his people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach in, uh, unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. In 1 Corinthians, he, he gives two different lists in the same chapter. Um, <clears throat> It's in uh, 1 Corinthians 12, and it's outlined in verse 7. Now to each one, the manifestation of the Spirit is given for the common good. Not for your good, for the common good, for the church. <clears throat> and then again in verse 13, 
For we were all baptized by one spirit, so as to form one body, whether Jews or Gentiles, slave or free, and we were all given the one spirit to drink. And that's the famous passage where Paul uses the image of the human body to say, you know, one spiritual gift is the hand and one is the foot. But you can't, the hand can't say it doesn't need the foot because they're all part of the same body. They're functioning, cooperating with one another for the same goal. And then in Romans 12, Paul says, we have different gifts according to the grace given to each of us. One of the interesting things about these, the, the gifts listed in each of these cases are not always the same. And that's because these are not meant to be comprehensive lists of what the Spirit can do. These are uh, gifts that are listed because they were the gifts appropriate to the congregations to which they were addressed in Ephesus, in Corinth, and in Rome, uh, and their particular uh, setting at the time. So remember that these are gifts of the Spirit. All their power and effectiveness is not based on our skill, but on submitting their use to the Holy Spirit. So if we want to know what we are to do following the Pentecost experience of the Holy Spirit, begin with these three things. Pray for the Spirit to develop His fruit in you. Seek to discover and develop the spiritual gifts the Spirit has given you and put them to work. And use all of these as well as your words, your heart, your actions to share with others what God has done in Jesus Christ. The danger of our celebration of Pentecost is indifference. It's kind of like Christmas. You spend the whole month decorating everything, and then the week after, you put it all the way, pack it in a box, and tuck it away somewhere. And then you go about life like nothing ever happened. You can't do that with Christmas, or Easter, or Pentecost, which is the third holiest day of the church year. Pentecost is about God changing us and changing the world through us. Some have said to me, well, the Holy Spirit was given to apostles and those early Christians to jumpstart the church. That's why they had all those miracles, but we don't have all that stuff happening anymore. And I haven't received it. I don't speak in tongues or heal the sick or cast out demons. I think the Spirit is only given to select individuals. I don't appear to be one of them. St. Peter disagrees because he says, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off, for all whom the Lord our God will call. <clears throat> so we spend 50 days celebrating Jesus' Easter resurrection and then we blow out Pentecost in worship 
with a display on the communion table, sometimes with banners on the wall and everybody wearing red. And then we go home, launder our red shirt, and put it in the closet until next year. Medieval churches had a step up on us. You know, they worshipped in huge cathedrals, which took hundreds of years to build. And in the ceiling of many of these cathedrals, they put in what they called Holy Spirit holes. These were holes that could be opened from the roof. And on Pentecost Sunday, some poor selected people got to go up on the roof of the cathedral and listen to the worship service. And when the time came, they were to open these Holy Spirit holes and stuff doves through them who would then swoop down upon the congregation. You know, the dove is a symbol of the Holy Spirit like at Jesus' baptism. And then the uh, youth, uh, the, ch the boys' choir, would get up and march out uh, making whooshing sounds like the wind. And they would march around the sanctuary doing that. And then they would open the Holy Spirit holes again. And they would dump bushels of red rose petals to symbolize the flames coming down. Now, wouldn't that be awesome? <laughs> you think uh, they'd let us put Holy Spirit holes in our room? <laughs> uh, but see, that's just the celebration. What comes after is what's really important. Being fired up with the Spirit doesn't need to be something dramatic. As Paul puts it, the most effective way to allow the Spirit to work is to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. That is your true and proper worship. Amen.